0: Breakfast is always a cup of warm milk flavored with haricot beans and a bit of dry bread. Orphanage food. The food is very strange and I am bothered by the people staring. It isn't the lively Italian curiosity but rather heavy and dull like cows in a field. Welcome to the diary, a podcast where we read from real diaries written by diverse people across history and into modern times. We're searching for those common threads that connect us. On today's episode, we will read from Mavis Gallant's diary. It was written in 1952 as she traveled to Spain. She provides an overview of her life, writing, eating, and watching the people of Spain. Now, let's begin. March 1952 an armed garden gray a church a wild rocky coast on which rushes a steel sea black rocks cliffs wind a cold spring sun fragile feathery fruit trees in pink at Port Bow leaving the train a large room like a drafty baggage depot I wait my luggage is wrenched open and inspected by insolent guards organized disorder luggage is chalked People drift to the currency exchange to declare what they are bringing in. I am bringing in so little, 12,000 lire, that I expect them to think I am hiding more. We are funneled into a doorway between filthy guards to show our passports. I am caught between a quarreling French couple. Evidently, bringing the baby was her idea. He knew better from the start. A wait, a long one, inexplicable multilingual confusion— Lending of pens, filling out of forms. I reach the window. Journalist, says the arrogant young man, will we all be like this? Beautiful, too. I know what I must look like after a night and a day and a night in a third class train. On to another window where something is stamped and a rush to the Barcelona train. They seem old, the carriages, but not shabby, just high and rather solid. No compartment doors, thank God, as I have been suffocating since Sicily. I share the window with a young girl who wears the Saint-Germain-Dupree uniform. Plaid slacks, black shirt, pea jacket, mascara, no lipstick. Holes in her socks, the heel is a great grubby white moon, and she obviously doesn't give a damn. She has two addresses for cheap rooms in Barcelona and Madrid and writes a note for one. Cal de Hortozela, 7, Madrid. The carriage fills. An old woman who can hardly hide her loathing for Miss St. Germain. Two businessmen who gravely offer each other smoking tobacco and papers for rolling. A booted soldier, fat blonde wife, two babies. Everyone sleeps. The soldier wakes up and says to one of the babies who is crying, Si tu no te calas, te tiras por la ventana which I immediately write down, as it is the first sentence in Spanish I have heard and miraculously understood, though if he had not pointed to the window I might not have known about ventana. April 1952 in Madrid I live on bread, wine, and mortadella. Europe for me is governed by the price of mortadella. I know the uni Priest's department store in France, the Yupim in Rome, and hear the Sepu all alike with music piped in. In Madrid, subdued flamenco, and they seem to like the airs from Sigmund Romberg operettas. Went to see Oliver Twist, which was dubbed and seemed very strange. In one scene, when he is beaten, the young people in the audience burst into maniacal laughter. This flat is full of sound. "'There is a squeaky baby I have not yet seen "'who cries like a toy being pressed. "'His mother croons and sounds like the Duchess in Alice. "'And then there is the strange dark woman who shouts, "'and a very little dark old creature with a senile face "'who creeps up to me and murmurs in the passage. "'I talk to her cheerfully in English "'until someone comes and rushes her off to the kitchen. "'The people are not friendly, but nice,' I think not accustomed to foreigners. Mama, look at the senora smoking, a little girl cried, staring at me in a cafe. Cool wind, fluttering apricot-colored tablecloths. At night the sky is deep indigo, the moon a piece of cold metal. Few city lights, and so it is almost a country sky. The sound of Madrid is a million trampling feet. Its smell is cooking oil. Everything tastes of it, even the breakfast croissants. This flat is awash in it. At lunch, I saw a meal being prepared, a bath of oil with something sinister swimming inside. Everyone looks exactly the same, lower middle class. Couples pushing carriages, carrying bags of diapers. There are babies, little girls in white skirts, so starched they stand out like lampshades, gold buttons in their ears. I've never been in a city where one was so conscious of crowds. The children masturbate, the way children in other countries skip rope or roller skate. Spanish parents must consider it like teething. They take no notice what whatever. It is startling to see family groups strolling in the park, dressed as if every thread had just been woven and starched, and the little ones tottering along, quite provi- privately absorbed. In the afternoon, cafes are stuffed. Little girls, stupid with beer, slide off their chairs. They play on the streets. Sit and roll on the pavement, even the babies. No germ phobia here, even though they die like pigeons of typhoid. Streams of urine everywhere, under cafe tables. Unlike Paris, where babies are held over the gutters, the parents in Madrid simply take down a child's pants, wherever it happens to be, without moving. On Mama's feet? Mama doesn't care. Saw a nurse with a baby boy, directing the stream, he on her lap so that the carriage, a chair, and his toes were splashed. It is like drinking in a public urinal. I am haunted by a man I saw outside a cinema on the Jose Antonio. Elderly, neatly dressed, bent, but I saw in his face that he would have begged if he dared. That face, tragic, proud, and desperate, I am beginning to recognize here. Wanted to let him know I was no better off than he, but my clothes are better and foreign-looking. I think I am not eating enough. Twice in the prado, I felt watery and faint. Outside, the traffic seemed far away and the cars very small. And I saw those black molecules swirling around as if I were being given ether. I don't feel hungry, only ill and tired. The Monte Piedad, a pawn shop, is run like a bank, big, efficient, and clean. I part with my typewriter for 1,500 pesetas. It turns out that in this country it is the most valuable thing I own. The clerk shows me bundles of clothing and somebody's curtains. Besides me on the bench is an old woman with that straight, strained gray hair they have, hugging her sewing machine. I smile at her, but I realize she is close to crying. Tonight it rains and the baby cries all night, is soothed by the harsh, rocking cry, Vaya, vaya, vaya. It is after midnight. Traffic rushes on as if it were high noon. I can hear men laughing and calling in the street. The little maids are washing and ironing in the kitchen. All the flats across the street are lighted, and the sky is like blue paper. Frederick, wishing to offer me a treat, takes me to Gone with the Wind, when I would have rather have had a meal. Five hours in the dark, at the mercy of gigantic faces and color. A crushing waste of a day. Either they were eating wonderful American meals, or they were starving and gnawing raw potatoes. Frederick, very sentimental, says the southern civilization reminds him of Hungary, and he suffers from being uprooted. Having no roots, I don't know what he is talking about. I think but do not say that if Hungary were anything like the South, I should want to be out of it. I have no right to call this work in progress a novel when it is so abstract. It is like an abstract idea I have held, or been held by, rather, ever since Austria, six months Two notebooks stuffed with it, stuffed with an idea. I must be mad. Worked from coffee to dinner, ate very little, then too tired and ill to work again. Regret bitterly having promised to help Frederick with his book, particularly as I am doing the dullest part, research and typing. Have typed myself numb and then my own work besides. Found a place where I can have a meal for ten pesetas. Brown tiled walls, greasy soup, I can't get down, but a good cutlet, place full of single, sad, youngish men, clerks from the look of them, gulpy, greasy macaroni. I glance twice at my wrist, forgetting the watch is gone. The novel, this bird in my mind, I have carried it there since Austria, suddenly alighted in Madrid, sitting in the Café Telefonica, eating a dry bun, I saw one of these girls with a long jaw, blackish skin, thin mustache, those girls who so often devote their lives to religion, and of course, that was the girl in the book. The stove went out, and I discovered the alcohol bottle was empty. Disaster. Waited an hour with a horrid soup of dried vegetable shreds that looked and tasted like floor sweepings and finally cooked it on the kitchen range, where a great iron pot of lentils and seafood bubbled slowly. Frederick arrived with some problem when I really could not cope, and he suddenly said in a voice wrung dry with bitterness, Oh, but of course you are the unselfish person, the most unselfish in the world, and I am the most selfish. It was the remark of someone who has nothing more to lose. And now it is suddenly cold, like March in New York. This place cries to be written about, the passive, shuffling crowds, crowds everywhere, leveled off, everyone the same. Well-dressed people are the exception, and the gap between them and the rest of us can be measured in miles. I am really shabby now. I noticed it yesterday when I passed two beautifully groomed women, hair-waved, good suits, perfume. They brushed by me with the same half-curious, half-impatient air they had for the rest of the street. I have only my Austrian shoes left, very scuffed, and stockings so full of runs that I can scarcely fasten the garter. They're so sheer that the runs don't show. Other clothes very tacky, everything needs cleaning. They've stood up well on the whole. Mummy's only advice to me ever in her whole life was, don't buy cheap clothes. Nothing looks working class, but just Madrid-level seedy. When I think of my life before I came here, it is like someone else's life, something I am being told. I can't write to anyone. At the moment, I haven't the postage, but even if I had, what to say? I'm not pitting myself, because I chose it. Evidently, this is the way it has to be. I am committed. It is a question of writing or not writing. There is no other way. If there is, I missed it. Frederick brought, wrapped in a newspaper, six pink crayfish with bulging eyes. They are exactly one bite each. The novel now, a series of rooms, all connected. Worked all day without fatigue. Excited now, daydreamed yards of it. Everything is separate, wrapped like pieces of Spain itself. If only I could give up Frederick's book and my pupils, but what would I live on? Parted with Granny's ring, a most unpleasant thing happened which I don't want to write here, and spent every peseta of it on food. Felt I had not eaten a good meal in days and days. June, 1952 in Madrid. Looking through the tangle of unfinished stories I carry with me everywhere, I find only three worth going on with, and am suddenly overcome by such a load of depression that I put the lot away. So much to finish, and so much to keep me from it, like a wall of glass between myself and the page. The greatest inhibition is that Shumbrun says he has only sold one story in twenty months. I wonder why no one liked the legacy— I am revolted at the idea of exposing any more of the things I write. I have always despised the people who write for themselves, who keep things in a trunk as if they would fade or disintegrate in the light and air. Now I begin to understand it. Each story means as much to me as the one before. I think of each one as honest. If they are bad, that is something else. I wish there were something you, who, someone who could say yes or no, keep on writing, or else give it up. As long as there is no one but myself i shall of course keep on but can i be trusted and how could i trust an editor is he free to trust himself a hot dusty day spent most of it under the plain trees on the prado watching this sibella's fountain and remembered the little fountain at salzburg the gauzy spray blown everywhere in the wind and the thin smell of autumn there lunched very quickly in the cheaper of the two cheap restaurants on a few bites of meat and potatoes, but the meat was rotten, and I was afraid to finish it, remembering how I nearly died of that kid's stew in Sicily. In the corner, a poor madman who never stops moving or chattering through his broken teeth. His wife, in a pretty mantilla, smiles pathetically, and with a kind of apology when anyone looks. The man holds his head to one side, takes out a sharp, very sharp knife. He combs his hair with it and then splits open a small loaf into which he pours meat and potatoes from his plate. Everyone looks, but not with amusement, as they would in America. They look with a suspension of all attitudes, watchfulness. They hold their forks in midair. Behind their eyes is the thought, how marvelous this is! How much worse can it be? I am made ill. When I pick up my wine, I feel a madman has touched it. His is the insanity of devils. Wasted Day "'wrote letters to avoid the novel. "'It is all there, and once I begin working I am submerged, "'but the plunging in frightens me. "'The people in it aren't as immediate as they were. "'I can't see them on the street anymore. "'They are real people, but only I know what has happened to them. "'Sometimes when I write I feel I am watched by, what, ghosts? "'Ghosts of people I have invented? "'If anyone comes in unexpectedly while I am working, I am terrified.' extraordinary deja vu today, decided to sell the green suit and as I spread it out on the bed had the giddy feeling of a mistake in time. It came back the day I bought it in New York not quite two years ago and spreading it on the bed so John Gallant, Mavis's ex-husband, could see it as he came in the room. I thought I would see on his face exactly what he thought of it no matter what he said. His opinion was so important to me but mine was not to him. I don't mean it was indifference. It probably never occurred to him to wonder what I thought. Couldn't bear to sell it suddenly, though I hope not for sentimental reasons. I wasn't sentimental about Granny's ring. It is my last good thing. Today I have no money and no food. Frederick came and I took what I had and we had coffee and a bun apiece. The important thing when you don't eat is not to get tired. In any case, the mind takes over. If I think about food, I am physically revolted. "'R' comes with ice cream in a covered plate melting down to something like an egg-powder omelet. "'We eat it out of the same plate, but not with the same spoon. "'He also returns the fifty pesetas, which he leaves without a word on the bed. "'I pick it up and put it on the table and say, "'You must not be so delicate. It is all right to talk about money. "'Spanish pride gets on my nerves. "'He wasn't ashamed to ask for it. "'Also, the gesture of money on a bed is disgusting, like someone paying a tart.' R. says that Frederick said to him that anyone could get anything from me. He said you must appeal to her maternal feelings, to her sense of guilt, and remember she is very Protestant and will not help you if you do not seem to be working at something. But also, she is like all the Americans. She gives in the long run what is not needed. I can scarcely write this. Today there was a letter from the New Yorker when I saw one morning in June— I wrote about the change of title and the mistake in spelling of the Cap Martin Monument. They write, Dear Miss Gallant, Thank God you had occasion to write me because you evidently not only haven't been getting your mail from Mr. Chambrun, but from the New Yorker as well. The last address he gave us was American Express Capri. It goes on, What is more to the point have you been getting checks? We sent Mr. Chambrun $790 for the picnic and 745 for the Cap Martin story. Also, they sent a copy of the letter sent to Capri and returned to them, which is dated May 5th. I had the great pleasure last Thursday of sending off to Mr. Shibram $1,304.75, with $230.25 to come for the two stories. Mr. William Shawn, the New Yorker's new editor, remarked in a memo that he did not know how much you had been encouraged, but that he thought it ought to be a good beal- deal. I could not take it in all at once. The two stories. And if the Cap Martin story had not been published, I would never have known. I could not take in that Chabrun had had this money from the beginning of May, simply could not admit that anyone would do this to me. I felt and still feel sick. I walked out of American Express like a person in shock and turned, I don't know why, into the Sepu people shuffling around, trying on carpet slippers and choosing fans. I realized I could not even buy a cake of soap. The sensation of disgust was curious, as if a colony of flies were stuck to me. Then I saw something so disgusting I can't write it here, and that was a symbol of what had happened and what people could be like. Told Frederick I no longer believe in the novel, he said write it whether you believe in it or not. It is like watching a plant die. Something in me was lacking, or I would have kept it alive, death in the grain, the shape of the leaf in the seed and the death. Then, everything we, was decided? That must be what is frightening me. Say, that I was not meant to exist, as I often believe, or to have anything or anyone, that it was decided within the cell. Say, with the death of my father, my failed marriage, loving a married man, the end with John H. was in the beginning. We heard a child cry, and he said expertly, "'That's a tired cry.' I knew from then that he had everything and I had nothing, that we were not equal because of that. It was not love, but a situation. It was implicit in the beginning, in the grain. Frederick said, "'If you stay with him, you complement his life. He cannot fill yours.' True. "'You will never be a writer. You will spend your time scheming and struggling to see him and think how clever you are.' True you'll never have anything of your own. True. When John spoke of his children, I felt humiliated. It was a situation. Then, what? Cross purposes. As I walked away, he said, With you goes my youth. But no, it was mine. I felt I was leaving a situation behind, not a man. All I could see was his blue raincoat. Chambrun has sent $400 and says he will send the rest later. The first thing I bought was good white bread. That's our diary entry for today. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please contact us with any questions at thediaryemail at gmail.com. And see the liner notes for more information. Until next time, keep writing.